I speak to you in the name of the one God who is lover, beloved, and love overflowing. The feast of the Epiphany, this day when we tell the very strange story of wise men from the East arriving in Bethlehem to adore, to give gifts to the newborn Christ child. Dictionary definitions of the word epiphany include a usually sudden perception of the essential nature or meaning of something, or an intuitive grasp of reality through something usually simple and striking. And so this leaves us with the question this morning, exactly whose epiphany are we celebrating? Whose sudden perception of meaning or intuitive grasp of reality? We're told that our wise men, on seeing the star rising that heralded the birth of a new king, set out to pay him homage. And notably, they go where one would expect to go to find a king, to the center of political power in Jerusalem, to the court of King Herod. This is where the new king will be. He's probably the son of the current king. Well, of course, Herod is king of the Jews in name only. A Roman client king and despot, he was far from devout or Torah observant, and whatever power he had actually came from the Roman overlords who appointed him. But we see that our so-called wise men, by making this their first stop in Judea, are making an assumption about where and who a king should be. And this assumption has disastrous consequences. What they essentially do is walk right into the center of corrupt worldly power and then ask the reigning tyrant if he could please point them in the direction of the new leader of the resistance. (laughs) And of course, Herod is all over this because he wants them to point him to this new leader of the resistance. And so he asks them to please, once they found the child, let him know so he can pay homage also. And the wise men set out again, and this time, rather than following their assumptions about where to find a new king, they follow the star, which leads them away from the center of imperial power in Jerusalem, and instead to Mary and Joseph, two Jewish nobodies in the little nowhere town of Bethlehem. And there they present their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And we shouldn't miss the clash created by these gifts and their surroundings. Clearly, these men have expected to make their offerings in a royal court. These are gifts appropriate to that context, gifts a king would give a king. You've all probably seen the cartoon of the three wise women who arrive at the manger with diapers, a casserole, and a bottle of wine. More helpful and appropriate gifts, perhaps. I wonder how odd our Magi felt giving these gifts in this setting to these people. Their expectations about where to find a king and who he will be have been turned upside down. And this is what Christianity, this is what Jesus always does. He subverts our expectations, stands the world on its head, and shows us God in unexpected, humble, and inappropriate places. And so again, whose epiphany are we remembering this morning? Perhaps it is the epiphany of the wise men 
who have their political preconceptions overturned and then must return home, we're told, by another road. If they had attended only to the star and not gone where worldly logic told them to look for a king, how differently the story might have unfolded. No slaughter of the holy innocents or flight into Egypt. How differently might our own present-day reality be unfolding if those of us who claim the name Christian saw through the lure of worldly power of our modern-day Herods and had our assumptions overturned by the gospel. But back to our wise men. Just who are these guys anyway? In Greek, they are called magoi, or in Latin, magi. And the word itself and exactly who it points to is a bit of a mystery. The Greek historian Herodotus, writing in the 5th century before Jesus, identified magi as a cast of priests from Persia who could interpret dreams. And so this has led to a long-standing identification of the magi with Zoroastrian priests who would have journeyed from what is modern-day Iran. A bit more vaguely, Nathan Nettleton writes that magi were the speakers of the sacred words at pagan sacrifices. At worst, the term referred to a magician or a sorcerer, even a deceiver. Magi were people whose activities were repeatedly condemned and prohibited throughout the scriptures and were completely anathema to the people of Israel. Similarly, Eugene Boring writes, The Magi are Gentiles in the extreme, characters who could not be more remote from the Jewish citizens of Jerusalem in heritage and worldview. Ancient church tradition variously understood them as coming from Arabia, Persia, and Babylon. And so Zoroastrian priests, Arabian occultists, Babylonian astrologers, whoever they were, Matthew clearly intends us to understand them as foreigners and outsiders to Israel. And yet, Mary and Joseph welcome and receive them. The arrival of peasant Jewish shepherds to honor the baby is one thing, but uncircumcised pagan foreigners? This is holding the door open wide. So again, whose epiphany? Do Mary and Joseph suddenly realize that the scope of the story they're caught up in is wider than they ever could have imagined? Matthew's gospel is the most overtly Jewish of the four gospels, rooting Jesus again and again in the hopes and longings of Israel. And yet Matthew begins his telling of the story with a first century interfaith encounter. Pagans at the manger. The epiphany that St. Paul will have decades later, that the gospel is also for the Gentiles, that this light knows no bounds. Matthew prefigures here at the very beginning of the story. Paul was only catching up with Mary, Joseph, and the Magi. Scott Hosey says that by opening the gospel in this way with these people, Matthew is giving us a sort of sneak preview of things to come. He writes, The Christ child who attracted these odd magi to his cradle will later have the same magnetic effect on Samaritan adulterers, prostitutes, tax collectors on the take, despised Roman soldiers, and ostracized lepers. In other words, Jesus always attracts the wrong people, outsiders and outcasts. 
Even from his birth, he has refused to play by the rules of worldly power and respectable society. He is the most unkingly of kings. There is an expansion of the story of the wise men written in the late second century in the Eastern Church. Titled The Revelation of the Magi, it survives today only in Syriac translation and was brought into English for the first time in 2010 by Brent Landau. It is a rather fantastic tale. There we learn that our Magi were 12 in number, not three, which has long been a tradition in the Orthodox Church. And Matthew's Gospel never actually gives their number. He only tells us that they brought three gifts. We're told they were part of an ancient mystical order that praised God in silence, and that they were descended from Adam's son Seth, and had for generations passed down the prophecy of the coming of a star. Well, at long last, the star appears to these twelve, first as a column of light that coalesces into a star, and out of it reaches the hand of a child. And the voice of the star explains that the star itself is the light of the Christ child, which is to be born as a human being to, in the words of the text, fulfill everything that has been spoken about me in the entire world and in every land in unspeakable mysteries, fulfilling not only the stories and longings of one people, but of all people. And so they set out and follow the light, which they discover not everyone can see, and they make the journey to the cave in Bethlehem. And the story unfolds more or less as we know it. They bring their gifts and their reverence to the child, who is the light they have followed. And as they set out on the return journey, the light appears to them once more and says, I am everywhere, and there is no land in which I am not. I am also where you departed from me, for I am greater than the sun, and there is no place in the world that is deprived of it. How much more I, who am the Lord of the sun? The light's own epiphany, its self-revelation of the universal within the particular. And then comes my favorite part. They return home, and they find when they arrive that the provisions of food in their bags have multiplied. We know what Jesus does with food. And so they begin sharing both the good news and the surplus of food with the people. And as the people of this land eat this holy food, they begin rejoicing and leaping for joy and then begin to share with each other the visions, the epiphanies they received as they consumed the food. One says, I saw God bearing God's self in the world. Another says, I saw a human being who is more humble in appearance than any man, and he is saving and purifying the world. Another says, I saw something like a lamb hanging on a tree of life, and by him and his blood, redemption takes place for all the creatures of the world. And little by little, as they share with one another, they find that the fullness of the gospel has been communicated to them through this holy food. And so again, whose epiphany? A final personal story. As an undergrad studying abroad in India, I learned how central the Eucharist, 
this holy food was to my life of faith. I had grown accustomed to receiving Holy Communion at least twice a week back home, but for much of my time in India, I had no access to a church at all. Well, one day, longing for the sacrament, I had just had a conversation with a friend about how hungry I was for it. I left the tea shop where we'd been talking and began walking home. And as I came around a bend in the road, I passed this little Hindu temple and found myself walking towards it. And as I approached, the resident Swami caught sight of me and walked forward in welcome. He spoke with a very thick Indian accent, and after we had talked for a few minutes, he asked, Are you a follower of Christ? And it took me a moment to catch his meaning, and then I said, Yes, I am a follower of Christ. And his eyes lit up, and he said so joyfully, Muslims pray to Allah, Christians to Christ, here we pray to Shiva, but we all are one. He explained that he had work to do and invited me to come back later in the evening. And as he walked inside, I turned to leave, but he very quickly reappeared, walking towards me with his hand outstretched and his fist closed, and I instinctively opened my palm, into which he dropped a handful of puffed rice and said, Eat. I brought it to my mouth and it tasted sweet, and I said thank you and began to walk away, and then he summoned me to the shrine area, making sure I took off my shoes. And he poured a spoonful of milk that had been given in offering to God over the food in my hand to drink. And then he handed me a blessed banana that had also been brought as an offering, and now I could go. And as I walked around the curve in the road, eating this holy food that had been offered to God and returned to the people, I was struck with the most overwhelming, unexpected sense of Eucharist, of the body and blood of Christ given for me in this moment, in this encounter, in this food. It was my own epiphany. The gospel was there in that food, given to me by a pagan wise man from the East, Christ showing up exactly where he didn't belong, in puffed rice and milk as if they were bread and wine. The light reminding me, I am everywhere, and there is no land in which I am not. And so again, whose epiphany do we celebrate today? Mary and Joseph's, the Magi's, or is it our own sudden perception of reality through something simple and striking? May the epiphany be for each one of us this morning as we are sent out to follow the light and to discover Christ in unexpected, unlikely, and inappropriate places. May our assumptions be overturned, and may the circle be drawn ever wider. Amen.